0: Mr. Vecchione, thanks so much for taking the time. I appreciate it.
1: Thank you for having me, Dimitri. I hope it, you don't mind me calling you Dimitri. If uh, You can certainly call me Michael. You don't
0: have to call me Mr. Vecchione. So. Will do. we Will do. We'll do away with the formalities. Yes, now, please. You've had a diverse career, more diverse than most prosecutors, right? You've had sex crimes. You've had an homicide. You've had an rackets. Talk to me a bit about your background uh, and take me through your history. Okay.
1: Well, it all starts with a um, uh, a detective who I knew who was uh, related to my then wife. She, it was her uncle, and um, I was in law school. and He um, he said to me, "You know, I work at the DA's office. He worked actually for the one of the one of the higher ups in the DA's office. And he why um, 'Why don't you why don't I try to get you in as an intern? You know, when you're while you're in law school.' And I and I did that between my first and second year in law school. And uh, Dimitri, I was hooked. You know, I was hooked. I, I loved it. Uh, and I knew that that's what I wanted to do. And, um, and when I was ready to graduate law school, I went to Hofstra and I was in their first class. So it wasn't the kind of thing where they had a lot of, uh, a lot of alumna, alumni, alumni, alumnae or alumni out there who were looking to take on people from, uh, from the new law school. But, uh, but I had this, you know, this position at the DA's office, um, when I was, uh, when I was in the first year and, um, and it paid off. I I interviewed with, um, with then DA Eugene Gold. And, um, and I I actually had a job. I actually interviewed also with the Manhattan DA's office and the Bronx DA's office. And, um, and they all came in at around the same time. Yes, yes. And yes. And I decided that Brooklyn was the place because I, you know, I, I even got to know the people who were there. I, I worked in the investigations bureau when I was an intern. I worked in the homicide bureau, so um, so it felt like home to me, and uh, and that's where it all began. And um, I started out as assistant DAs, as you probably know, um, you know, in the criminal court uh, bureau, handling arraignments, um, working in the complaint room, writing up complaints, and and it was you know it was very interesting because you meet a lot of cops, you meet a lot of complainants, and you get to know what the what the business is about. Um, I'll tell you a funny story. One of the first times I was ever in arraignments, uh, one of, it was the first time I was working in the complaint room, which is a place where police officers and, vi- and victims and witnesses come to tell you what happened on a particular case and you draw up criminal court complaints. Um, so I was supposed to work, I guess it was a um, four to 12 shift in the complaint room. So I get to the get to the to the uh, to the to the to where I was supposed to report. Probably it was about three thirty or so, and the boss comes over to me and he says, um, "He says uh, you just got here." I said, "Yeah." He says, "Okay, go downstairs to the arraignment part. You're working arraignments tonight." I said, "Are, are you kidding? I never was. I don't know what to do." He says, "Well, it's it's three thirty. They're going to close at five, so you could stay for an hour and a half and see watch what's going on." to meet you. I worked the that night alone. And thank God I had a terrific judge who was uh, actually was Judge Brown, who later became the DA in Queens. He was the judge in arraignments, And, uh, and he helped me out. And he he knew right away, he called me to the bench. And he said, uh, Mr. Vecchione, you're, uh, this is your first time here? I said, yes, Judge. Um, I said, you know, I could use the help. He says, don't worry, Not, nothing bad is going to happen. So, but you know what it was like in those days. This was 1974 in Brooklyn. I mean, I had over a hundred cases that I had to deal with that particular night. It was it was madness, and you had to talk to a, a cop in one ear, a, a witness in the other ear, while you were doing stuff before the court. You know. And um, anyway, it was a, it was a baptism of fire. And um, from there, I went to uh, the Supreme Court Bureau, and I was then recruited. Actually, by the Homicide Bureau, by um the head of the Bureau at the time was, was a fellow named Ron Aiello. And um and he had gotten to know me in the early days when I was working in the in the investigations bureau, which is one of the other places that you start as a as a young prosecutor. And um, and he recruited me up and, and I became a homicide prosecutor. I had tried <laughs> I had tried one case in the Supreme Court, and um and it ended at the end of the the, the evidence the defendant took a plea so i guess it was a win so he 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 asked me to come up and i um i became a homicide prosecutor and rode homicide duty every 4 or 5 days out in precincts and taking statements and and that's where i learned all about how to be what i became in terms of a prosecution you know you get to know detectives and you get to know who you can trust you get to know um you know how to handle bad guys and bad ladies and um and witnesses and and um it was terrific it was terrific and um and then i got i got promoted after that to take over a group called the major offense bureau and i became the uh the boss even though i wasn't a bureau chief i was an, a unit chief at the time and and it was a place where the um the worst of the worst in terms of defendants were prosecuted we took cases of, of people with long records and, and handle them. And the idea was to, very different from today, was to send them to jail for as long as they possibly could go, you know? And, um, and that, that gave me a lot of experience. I have to tell you, Dimitri, I, I was then tapped to do a, a very uh, important case involving the murder of two police officers. And um, I was the third prosecutor who had the case. The other two had ended in, in hung juries. And I think that D.A. Gold was going to get rid of the, the case and was going to dismiss it or not try it again after the second hung jury. And I get a tap on my door one day and, and it's the, the boss of the Supreme Court Bureau. He comes in and he says to me, um, come with me, we're going to see the D.A. I said, okay, what are we, where are we going? He says, well, he'll tell you. So he, he told me he wanted me to try this case again. And I found out that what had happened is the police uh, union chief, had called the DA and said, "Please give it another shot." Dimitri, the case was horrible. I mean, it was it, the witnesses were bad. It had that. In addition to two trials and two sets of cross examination of these witnesses, they had also given statements to the writing DA to the DA who later tried the cases. It was it was a mess, and that um, you could figure out it was an acquittal. Um, but that didn't hurt me because. I got good reviews from the people who watched the trial, including the judge and um, and his law secretary, who became a judge after that. And, and I tried a lot of cases with uh, in front of him. And I got promoted. I got promoted to take over to become deputy bureau chief in the Sex Crimes Bureau. And then something happened. My One of my good friends worked for, at that time, the mayor, uh, the soon-to-be mayor, Ed, Ed Koch. And Koch won, and he, he asked this fellow, my friend, um, to take over at the police department to become deputy commissioner of trials, which is sort of the the judge within the police department to, who handles disciplinary cases, et cetera. My buddy said, if I'm going over, why don't you come with me? There's an opening for the chief prosecutor, and you can take over the office of department advocate. And I did. I got the job. I went to interview with uh, then Police Commissioner Bob McGuire and uh, got the job and spent two years, you know, in the the, uh, police department uh, prosecuting um, civilians as well as police officers for violations of their rules and procedures. And I had done some big cases there, you know, some cases that the prosecutors in the city did not want to try. They didn't feel like they had enough evidence. So they would send the case back to us and we would do a disciplinary proceeding because the standard of proof was a lot less. It was um, uh, not beyond a reasonable doubt. It was, it was sort of like a civil, it was a civil proceeding. So um, I did that for two years. And then my friends who got me into this whole thing said, I'm leaving, why don't we start a law practice? And I did, I went with him. And for the next 10 years we practiced law together um, until he decided to get back into politics and, and said, I'm leaving. And I was on my own for a year. When I got a call from Joe Hines, and uh, actually from a buddy of mine, a guy I had worked with a long time before I left, and he said, um, Hines is looking for someone to take over, uh, to try important cases in the office. He was switching to the zone situation. You know, I'm sure you're familiar with it, right? So it was a brand new system. He wanted to make sure that somebody knew what they were doing when they were trying cases. And, and I got the call, and I went. And I got to tell you, before I stepped foot back into the office, which was going to be, I guess, maybe two or three months after I had gotten the call, um, I get another call from the, from the DA's office and they tell me, come on over, we have a case for you. And I'm I'm now a defense attorney, you know, so they they were preparing me because what they wanted me to do was when I gave them back to the office to try a very, very important murder case that had ended in in a mistrial and it was going to be retried. The assistant DA who tried the case had taken a job in the Queens DA's office, and they wanted me to do it. So um, I came back to the office. Uh, I got promoted to deputy bureau chief of the Homicide Bureau before I even stepped into the, into the place, and, and then tried this case. And um, that was in January of 92. Uh, January, February, March, that's how long it took me to try the case. When I got finished, I got called into Heinz's office and said, I'm making you chief of the Homicide Bureau. And that was it, Dimitri. I, I became chief of the Homicide Bureau, then chief of trials. And then when Dennis Hawkins, who was my um, predecessor in Rackets, decided to leave, uh, retire and move on to something else, Heinz called me in and said, you ever want to practice you know, and do Rackets cases? And I did. I, You know, I had enough I, I, I tried so many homicide cases and had done so many, it was just, you know, kind of getting to the point where, as I say it to you now, I've even embarrassed to say it. I used to say when it was not an important homicide case, you know, not a big deal with the papers and everything, I would call it, ah, oh, this is just another bullshit homicide. And then I said to myself later on, wow, that's not the way to be because someone died, you know? So I knew that I had needed, I needed a change and I took over rackets and, um, Rackets was, you know, the place where I found my home. It was really a terrific, terrific spot. And um, once again, one of those at the beginning of my time there, um, that fellow, Ron Aiello, who used to be my boss in homicide, <laughs> came, uh, had a case. He was a defense attorney at the time, and he called to, uh, called up to Joe Hines and said, listen, I have a client who's an attorney who thinks that, uh, who has a judge who's shaking him down for, um, you know, for money. And that started me off on what would be a seven-year corruption investigation, because that led to another case involving judges, corrupt judges, which led to corrupt politicians, which led to another judge who was, and and it took me a long time to to get through that. Um, I had I was involved in in, in prosecuting, uh, investigating, and prosecuting a former FBI agent and the famous mafia cops case involving two detectives who were um, who were on the take, the mob payroll. And, um, and then as you well know, the election in 2013 happened and um, we were all uh, kind of, I, I didn't, I wasn't going to take Thompson booting me out of the office. So I decided to retire and, and, and go out and, and do what I, you know, what I'm doing now, which is writing books. So um so that's it in a nutshell. It's a big nutshell, but that's it in a nutshell.
0: So how how has New York City changed in terms of crime, criminal justice over the past several years, even decades? Obviously, is it policing? Is it something else?
1: Well, you know, when I first started, um, it was in the in the 70s, uh, and and in the DA's office, and I can recall, you know, New York City was horrific at that time. I mean, it was the height of the crack epidemic. It was um, it, it was the drugs were out of control homicides were out of control there was one year where the city had well over 2000 homicides and brooklyn had a good poor had a good portion of them um and um you know and then uh, things got progressively worse when uh, dinkins became the mayor um but then when giuliani beat him things changed giuliani became the real you know uh, the the anti-crime mayor and um started with the broken windows theory and stop and frisk and and things began to slowly change. You could see um, that homicides went down and, and, you know, and it was when we cracked less than 500 in Brooklyn at one time, it was like, you know, it was like Christmas. It was unbelievable. People were, and then it got down to, you know, the city was at 500 and sometimes even below because Bloomberg took over once um, once Giuliani left, and Bloomberg did, you know, had the same policies, and um, it was like the golden era for us in the DA's office because, you know, we were we were we were struggling I, early on, you know, when 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 crime was was really bad, um, but policing is different. It is different now prosecutors are much different you know prosecutors to me are not even prosecutors anymore they're like social workers you know and and that's not what I think a prosecutor should be um so so that's how it has changed I mean we've gone from horrific to fantastic to back to horrific again um you know I I was just telling my wife this morning about a case that I read uh, in, that happened in Times Square yesterday, where a um, someone went in with a with a to shoplift, and when the security guard stopped them, he pulls out a gun and fires at the security guard and hits a tourist in the leg, and then runs out. Cops chasing him, and he's on Sixth Avenue in Midtown Manhattan, firing a gun at the cops. Um, that that kind of thing was would have been like a, a tale of fiction when. Giuliani and Bloomberg were, were mayors. Uh, now it's become, you know, common occurrence. And it's, uh, it's very, very disturbing, very disturbing. So,
0: you know, the arguments and your obviously your opinion here would be more valuable than most, right? The arguments circle around the idea that things like broken windows and stop and frisk, while useful law enforcement mechanisms have impacts that are both direct and residual down the road that are harmful to society. What do you say to that?
1: Well, I don't necessarily agree. I think that it was, there is harmful some, if you have bad police officers or corrupt police officers or racist police officers doing that kind of thing and doing it for reasons other than because it's good policing, then it's bad. Then there's no question that it's bad. But if you have honest police officers and good police officers and caring police officers who who take their job seriously and and are backed up by the administration in City Hall and by each of the DAs by by showing them that, uh, you know, that their work is not for naught, um, then I think that they're good they're good practices. I mean, think about this. Recently, I read that, you know, when, when the DAs started to not prosecute various crimes, like fare beating, for instance, um, you know what they lost? They lost the ability to see if those people who were jumping the turnstile had a weapon on them because if they were caught jumping the turnstile, then a cop would, te- would pat them down and many times find guns. Now, since Adams has changed things a bit and has concentrated on you know, subway crime somewhat more than he had at the beginning of his, of his tenure, um, they're recovering guns again as a result of arresting fare beaters. So stopping them, frisking them and arresting fare beaters. So I think that if you don't abuse the procedures uh, than they are good procedures and they do have long-term long-term effect um, a lot of people who are bad and dangerous criminals have started out by doing things like shoplifting jumping turnstiles and quote unquote breaking windows you know and that's the whole theory
0: your life and your career reads like a book and I want to talk about some of the cases that you've you. investigated and prosecuted tell me about Justice Gerald Garson
1: Okay. Well, first of all, let me say that I'll give myself a little bit of a plug. It is a book. It's called Crooked Brooklyn. It was it was my memoir, which is about the six, seven, eight years that I did this corruption investigation that I was mentioning before. So I, it's still out there. It's still available on on Amazon, Barnes and Noble, etc. So um, I encourage anybody who's interested in this, in what I'm saying, wants to learn more about that time. Uh, in, in New York City. That's a good book to uh, to to get and to read. Um, so Gerald Garson. Um, I had no clue when I started that investigation who Gerald Garson was. Not a clue. He was a civil judge. I practiced, obviously, in the DA's office in criminal term. But as I began to investigate him, and I'll get to how he started with the investigation in a second, um, I learned that he was the secretary or treasurer of the Brooklyn Democratic Party and that he had gotten his position as a judge the way all judges in Brooklyn were getting their position at that time. The borough president, some other politician would say, you know, you've done a good job for us. You've done a good, you were a good Democrat, so we're going to give you this this position. And that's how he got his job. Not that he was qualified. He used to represent, by the way, um, uh, the taxi taxi drivers and taxi driver companies, taxi companies, etc. So um, not necessarily the resume that you would think a judge ultimately would be um, would, would have. So the way that we got the investigation is very very uh, interesting. Um, I had another case case before this in which that I told you about, in which this lawyer came to. Us and told us that he had been solicited for a, a, bri- a solicited of a, a bribe from a judge who he had settled the case in front of again in civil part, and um, in civil term. And this is another judge who I had no clue even existed. His name was Victor Barron. and Barron was go- told him that he would he would sign this infant's compromise document, which. I'm sure you know when an infant is the victim, uh, is hurt in an automobile accident or some other way, and 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 he, she's, and her parents sue on her behalf or his behalf. The judge has to sign off on the settlement so that he's satisfied or she's satisfied that the parents aren't going to take the money, and that the money is actually in a position to be had for that child for her needs or his needs, or when they grow up to use themselves, right? So it's very important. You can't settle that kind of a case without a judge's signature. Baron said to the lawyer, I'll sign the papers, but I want $250,000 of your piece of the, of the fee. Now the fee was, I'm sorry, not the fee, the uh, recovery. Recovery was, was fairly substantial. It was well over $3, $3 million. So the lawyer, he told me, he said, I, I didn't know what to say. So I just said, okay. Um, so the judge signed it and um, and months passed without him hearing from the judge. So he thought, well, you know, maybe I misheard. Maybe I misunderstood. Right after the end of the year holidays, he gets a call and it's the judge. And he tells, the judge says to him, I want to see you. And he goes to his chambers and he tells him, I didn't forget, I want my money. And um, and the guy he, the guy negotiated it down from two hundred fifty thousand to one hundred fifteen thousand. So he now was on the hook, and he went to Aiello, who was his lawyer, and Aiello took him to a judge friend, and the judge friend said, "You know what? I you, I don't even believe you. I can't believe you. So, you know, go to the judiciary committee, this disciplinary committee, if you think you need to." And the guy didn't want to do that. He knew that there was criminal activity here. And he came to us. And to make a very long story short, we wired him up. We got a big, a a great statement. And, and, and we prosecuted this guy. He was the day of his sentencing. And by the way, he was sentenced to three to nine years in prison. The day of his sentencing, it was broadcast on, on the news. And there was a woman watching this at home. She had a, a, a a case in front of Judge Garson in the matrimonial part. It was a case involving the uh, custody of her children. Her divorced husband was trying to take her kids away from her and um, and the case was in front of Garson who handled the divorce case. So while she was in court, she was in court many times and and a lot of the, the decisions, the preliminary decisions were going against her in the courthouse. And one day she's in court and she, um, there's a, a, a fellow litigant in the courtroom with her. And he whispers to her. He said, you know, I've been here a lot of times when you've been here. He said, um, I, I, I can help you. So she's now beside herself because she knows that there's a problem. And she goes outside the courtroom to talk to him. And, um, and he says to her, I, I, I know the judge. She says, "and I'm telling you that you'll, your husband paid him off. Because I know he's a corrupt judge, so if you pay me, I can get the money to the judge, and things will turn around. So that was his his rap to her, right? So she so she said so she didn't know what to do. She had gone to the attorney general's office. She had gone to the FBI. She had gone to the um, to the U.S. attorney. All to complain about this judge and what she believed now, based on what this guy had told her, that he was corrupt and wanted money from her. All of them basically said, Dimitri, get lost. You know, you're a crazy woman, we're crazy. So she saw this, this, this sentencing where the Brooklyn DA's office actually did a case and a judge, a corrupt judge, was being sent to prison for three to nine years. The next day she came into the office. Now, in the DA's office, as you know, there are riding DA's, people who are on call for 24 hours to answer questions of cops and detectives and to to listen to witnesses. And we had the same thing in the rackets division. We had, there was an office wide riding system. We had one in rackets and she came in and the assistant DA who was on call that day. Um, he listened to her. And he went to one of our detective investigator administrators and told them. Uh, first, he had gone to, the, my I guess, my second-in-command in the Rackets Division and told, uh, told her about what, he, she, what this woman had said. And it's sad to say, but she said the same thing. Sounds like just a crazy woman who's, you know, not, things are not going her way. And luckily, this assistant DA didn't take no for an answer. And he went to one of our detective investigators and told them, what he had, what she had just said, what she had just told him. George Terra was the detective investigator came to me, he and I worked together on a lot of cases and uh, told me what was going on. And he said, Mike, I interviewed her, I think she's telling the truth. He said, what do you want? What do you want me to do? I said, let's do this. So this is um, Frida Hannemar is her name. She was an Israeli, a Russian, uh, a Russian Jewish woman who went to Israel, moved to, from Israel to the United States, and um, and she was pregnant, Dmitri, about five or six months pregnant, and um, and the so we we had her call um, the the this this fixer in, in, who approached her. His name was Nissan Elman, and tell her tell him that she was interested. And that he, she wanted to meet him. And um, and he said, okay, meet me tonight. He gave her his, uh, his, uh, his business uh, address. He was a guy who was sold like refurbished electronics, and TVs and DVD players and things of that nature. And uh, it was, I forgot where it was in Brooklyn, maybe Flatbush or something. So George said to me, um, this is what I want to do. I want to wire her up and send her in to talk to this guy. I said, George, oh, my God, this is a five-month pregnant woman. We can't send in an undercover. He said, Mike, it's not going to work with an undercover. So he said, we'll be right outside. She's going to be wired. We'll be listening. And uh, let's see what happens. So I, I took the chance and spoke to her. And she said, I, I want to do it. And she did. And she went in and got a great conversation with this guy. and um, And that led us well, first of all, we then paid him his, what he was looking for. We had all of that marked. That led us to putting him, uh, his office, uh, and he, his phone up on a wire. That night, after this meeting, they stayed. The detectives stayed and, and to see if there was any reaction from when the woman woman left. So Elman comes out of his place of business and with another man, this, this guy who turns out to be a lawyer. And they're hugging in front of the, the business, in front of the, this, this warehouse. So we find out later on that his, um, his name was Paul Simonovsky. And Simonovsky was the lawyer for the her children. He was assigned to represent the children, make sure that nothing happened, uh, you know, that the children's interests were protected, etc. So um, we found out that Simonovsky got a piece of the money that she paid to Elman. Why? Because Simonovsky had an in uh, with this Judge Garson. He had been he he had been giving Garson some gifts, should we call them? He knew that Garson would um, would do what he wanted if he if he if he approached them. And so we went up on his phone. His office was right down the block from the DA's office, believe it or not. And um, anyway, that led us to to picking up Semenovsky. I turned him. He became an informant for me, sent them in wire to to the judge. And um, but I missed a very, very important piece. Once we spoke to Semenovsky, once we heard things on his phone, Semenovsky, and we knew that Garson was basically on the take, we decided to put a recording device and a camera in the judge's chambers to watch what he what he had done, to watch and see and get evidence of, of what we knew was was corruption. Now, the case before with the judge that was arrested for wanting a piece of the of the infant's compromise money, the judge who was the administrative judge who, um, who I had to go to to fill him in when we were about to arrest this guy. Um, was in my opinion unfairly punished by the by the the court system. He was taken off that position, um, out of and and sent to, quote unquote, a promotion, to be a, a judge on the appellate term in in Brooklyn, um, and a new judge was put in. She was from the court, office of court administration. <laughs> And and she is brand new. It's just after she takes the place of this other judge. And I walk into her chambers, and I introduce myself, and I say uh, I'm here because I'm looking for another ser- for looking for a search warrant, and we're looking for an eavesdropping warrant, and we're looking to put a camera and recording device in the judge's chambers. Dimitri, I, I, I think she wanted to kind of crawl under the desk. That's how she says, "Not again." I said, "I'm sorry, Judge. Yes, again." And I told her what I just told you, and we did it. We did it. We put in. We, we what we had to do was we had to get someone in the court system, uh, in the in the the court system, to be to trust. We needed to trust somebody who could get us into places in the courthouse that we wouldn't be able to get into without tipping off everybody as to what we were doing. And we found the guy. He was the deputy clerk. He was the head of the civil clerks in the civil side. And he got us into the judge's chambers, which not his main chambers, but the judge had a courtroom in the municipal building in Brooklyn, which became a sort of courthouse on a couple of floors. And the matrimonial parts were in that building. So he had but I've called chambers, it's more like an ante room where he did his interviewing of witnesses or talk to lawyers and discuss settlements, etc. His main chambers were in the main courthouse. So they, um, they, they George Terra and, and the guy who was in charge of our wire, wiring room and, and knew this kind of stuff. Had, we had, first of all, we had to go probably, I think it was probably 11 or 12 o'clock at night because we needed to make sure no one was around the courthouse. And We got into the into the building, went into the courthouse, and he um, he looked around into the in the chambers, looked up the ceiling, and it was like you know God had said great you know and had kind of touched his hand on our shoulder because he had an acoustical tile ceiling, and in the corner of one of the tiles, right over the judge's desk, was a corner was missing, so it was perfect. To put a camera in there, and when we and when we originally showed it, we could see the judge and you could see the chairs in front of his desk on the side, and the wire we put the the recording device and the and the wire we put into, you might not even be old enough to know this, but when we had telephones, most people had landlines, and particularly in offices, they had telephone boxes where. They would be screwed into the wall, and the wires for the phone were in that box. Well, there was one right next to the judge's desk. Of course, it wasn't used anymore, so it was perfect. Unscrewed it, put the recording device in there, screwed it up. Nobody knew the difference. Now, first day, we turned on the equipment. It was as if they were robots. People were walking like this because the equipment wasn't that good. It was old. So we shut it down. I went to the DA and said, listen, if we're going to do this, we need to do it right. We need to invest in brand new equipment. And we, he did. He said, yes, right away. And we spent thousands of dollars on new equipment. Went back in, Dimitri, to have to do this all over again. And when we turned it on, it was like I was watching you now on television. It was perfect. The sound was perfect. The, 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 the video was perfect. And it got us a lot of information about Simonovsky, this lawyer, and we decided that we needed to turn him. We needed someone on the inside who could really give us the evidence and maybe even work for us. So what we did was we, we picked him up one morning. He lived way out on East, in eastern Queens in Bayside, and we knew where he lived. And George and a couple of his guys and gals um, knew what time he left for work. And they followed him one morning, and this is what the plan was. The plan was for one of the detectives to call Simonovsky's telephone so that um, he would be on the phone and and be a little bit distracted because we were going to follow him and at a certain point going to stop the car and then tell him he was under arrest. And then, and that's what happened. And it worked perfectly. And they brought him to... Um, to Fort Hamilton. You know where Fort Hamilton is? Or, or In way on the coast, the southern coast of Brooklyn, pretty much under the Verrazano Bridge. The Army um, Criminal Investigation Division has an office there in one of the buildings. And um, we've worked with them in rackets before. And the the one of the bosses in charge there knew George. And George was able to get him to allow us to use their offices to interview this attorney. Now the whole point, Dimitri, was that we couldn't interview people normally in the DA's office, et cetera, because this is the court system. And you well know, downtown Brooklyn, it's like a it's a big city, but it's like a small town. Everybody sees what's going on. So bringing a sitting judge into the DA's office, even if we did it through the through the garage. Somebody could have seen him. We didn't want to do that. So we brought him to to this location, and it was cold. It was a February day. Snow was on the ground. Later on, the judge who I had originally gone to to tell him to, to ask her to give us the warrant, she later, when she found out all about what I'm about to what I, what I'm telling you, she said, "Wow, it sounds like the gulag with the cold weather and 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 the snow and all this other stuff. Well, we got him in there. Told him what he was, um, and he and he asked for a lawyer. We we knew that he was going to do that, and we got his lawyer. We brought his lawyer in, and I sat down with the lawyer and him, and we told him what was up. And he said, "Nah, you don't have anything." I said, "Okay, we were prepared for that too." Believe it or not, well, of course you would believe it. You know, we had videotapes, right? Nobody has videotapes anymore. We had videotapes. We had the the army gave us this big screen television a videotape player, and I said, I'd like you to watch something. And we popped the videotape of one of the sessions where Semenovsky had given the uh, the judge an envelope with money in it. His lawyer said to me, um, could you excuse us? I want to talk to him. Well, I left a little while later, he came back, and he said, he's ready to talk. He'll give you everything you want to know. So we took Semenovsky there. Oh, I'm sorry. I, I said the judge. I, we Semenovsky, it was Semenovsky who we started with. He didn't want a lawyer. He wanted to see what we showed him. And I showed him that, what I just told you. Um, not the, the payoff. The payoff was to the judge. I showed him another piece of film that we had. And he said, I'm, I'm ready to to help you. And he did. He helped us. He paid off the judge. He did everything on tape. And then we did the did the same thing with the judge. We brought him to the gulag. His lawyer said he wants to help you, and um, he gave us the head of the Democratic Party in Brooklyn, which led us to a another assemblywoman who was a corrupt assemblywoman, which led us to Judge Garson's, believe it or not, his cousin who was also a Supreme Court judge. It was it was just amazing, and I, and that was six or seven years of my life because I did all the investigations along with a couple of other ADAs, the trials, I did the trials. So it was, um, so when we, when we were finished with this part of my, when I was finished with this part of my life, Jerry Schmetterer, who was the the person in charge of the DA's publicity office, the, the press office, and I became very good friends. And he said to me, it almost like he had some sense as to what was going to happen with the election, he said, Mike, you know, we should, we got to write, use this in this, this seven years and write a book. And, and that's what, and that became Crooked Brooklyn. Um, once we lost, we decided that's what we were going to do. Crooked Brooklyn led me to another book. And, and anyway, that's, uh, so that's Judge Garson. By the way, Dimitri, one last piece. Garson, although working for us and with us, confessing, knowing the tapes we had, decided to go to trial. And his lawyer, who he got, who did, I'm sure he didn't pay the lawyer. He must've been a favor. Lawyer was terrible. The lawyer denied to the judge. Jo- I mean, he when he summed up, he said, my client never took money. My client never did this. And all I did, and keep in mind now, we tried this case and we had this big, huge TV screen in the courtroom, and, and the whole jury watched him taking the money. In fact, when he took the envelope with the money, from the lawyer, from the corrupt lawyer, the lawyer left, he took the money out and started to count it. So it wasn't as if, you know, it was scraps of newspaper in that envelope. It was, it was money. He went, he, of course, he got convicted. He got three to nine as well. Um, and and his information led us to Clarence Norman, who was the head of the Democratic Party in Brooklyn. I indicted him four times, convicted him three times. Um, so it was a it was a, a rather busy and, um, but I have to say rewarding time for my life. It was, um, you know, you know what it's like, you try a case and what the outcome, if the outcome is favorable to you, you're, it's like walking on air, right? And, um, when you can do well for your clients, you feel like, uh, like a million bucks. So that's how it felt. So, um, so that's, that's Gerald Garson and, um, he, he <laughs> You know, I, I I mentioned his cousin. His cousin was also a Supreme Court judge. You know how we got him? It's unbelievable. The lawyer, when he was wired, was talking to Judge Gerald Garson. And Garson was complaining to him about his cousin. And you know what the complaint was? The cousin was the guardian of their mutual aunt who had a lot of money. And he, Michael Garson, the cousin, was taking money to use to pay for his daughter's tuition, et cetera. Not he wasn't getting permission. Garson wasn't upset that he was committing crimes. He was upset. Gerald Garson was upset because if the aunt died, it was going to be less money for him because his cousin was taking money to pay for all kinds of expenses. So that's what we were dealing with, and um, it was it was quite a uh, quite an adventure, I have to tell you. So, um...
0: you know, the most appropriately termed phrase that the media's probably ever given to anyone was the term that it gave to Lou Epolito and Steve Caracapa. Mafia cops has to be, whoever thought of it deserves whatever award folks in the media get. Tell me about the Mafia cops case.
1: Hey, well, first of all, I'll tell you who came up with the term Mafia cop Lou Epolito. <laughs> Lou Epolito wrote a book well before we locked him up, called Mafia Cop. You know why? Because his his father and one of his uncles uh, were part of the Gambino family. They were made men in the Gambino family. And he complained in the book that the police department didn't treat him properly because they believed that he was a quote-unquote Mafia cop. And um, and you know what? He was. <laughs> he was. So um, So that's where that came from. The the mafia cop saga is again part of this seven year period that I'm talking about. I have a very good friend. Uh, his name is Tommy Dades, and Tommy Dades wrote the book with me. And David Fisher was the author, and um, and Tommy and I contributed to the book, and and our names are all on there. Uh, Tommy Walk came. Tommy and I had done a lot of cases together. We would. He was. I did a lot of cold cases. He would he would as a, he was a detective first in the 6-8 precinct which is in Bay Ridge then he went to the intelligence division and um, he did a lot of mob cases he had come to me one time he didn't know me but he had a case that he needed someone to handle and he had heard about me and came and asked me if I would do this case with him and um and I got to tell you Dimitri it was not it was not a great case it was really a pretty lousy case but we did it and I did it and uh, we wound up winning the case. And and so that became, we laugh at each other now and we say, he says to me, you were my ADA and I say, and you were my detective, you know, because we did things together all the time, all these cases that he used to bring to me. So I remember I told you before I was, I was in the police department for two years before I left as a prosecutor. Well, during that time, I learned about um, Lou Eppolito. He was not. The favorite of the internal affairs people. Everyone had uh, an idea that he might—he was corrupt, and and it turns out he was obviously. Um, so I knew all about him. And uh, and one day I'm working on one of these judge cases, and Tommy walks in and he says, "Listen, I got some information about Epolito because he knew that I where I had worked before." And I said, "What do you got?" Tells me that the mother of one of the of the people that. The mafia cops picked up and had killed on behalf of the mafia, um, on behalf of Gas Casso, who was the underboss of the Lucchese family, maybe the consigliere, but he was a Lucchese. Um, he, I guess it, I have to start back up a little bit. The whole thing starts with, believe it or not, something completely separate from the mafia cops. The um, the murder of Paul Castellano, who was the head of the Gambino family, by John Gotti, guess, uh, Sal, uh, Salvatore Gravano, Sammy Gravano, and others, um, was unsanctioned by the mafia head, the heads of the families. They did it on their own. That didn't sit well with two of the, the heads of the mafia, Gas Pipe Casso and Vincent Giganti, the chin, who used to be the the guy who pretended to be a sad sack and walk around Greenwich Village, and um, and they gave the okay to um, to to Sammy. I'm sorry, to Gaspipe to um, to kill Gotti. They gave him the okay, and and Gaspipe found out that Gotti would go on Sunday mornings to a particular social club in Bay Ridge, Bensonhurst, that area. And, um, and he, he hired and, and recruited a demolitions expert from the army who he knew. And the plan was when Gotti and his driver pulled up and parked their car and went into the club, the munitions expert was going to put a bomb under the car and then set it off, killing Gotti and killing his driver. Well, they did exactly that. They put, they set the whole thing up. In fact, gas pipe was the guy who was walking alongside the car just before they the the Gotti and the and his driver came to it. And as he was walking, he was carrying a grocery bag and looked like it had, you know, some Italian bread and things in it. And he he pretended to drop something. And when he did, he slid the he slid this IED kind of bomb under the car. Across the street on 86th Street in Brooklyn, across the other side of the street was the munitions expert who had the detonator and was ready to, uh, was waiting for them to get into the car. So Gas Pipe goes, he goes around the corner, gets in his car and waits for the explosion. <laughs> and um, two guys come out at a social club. The, the Unfortunately, the guy in the car across the street didn't actually know who John, didn't know anything about Gotti. Or the, the, and he didn't know that the guys getting into the car, one of them was not John Gotti. It was his driver, but it wasn't Gotti. So he drives across the street, sets the bomb off, blows it up, right? That, the both of them die. Now, when Gotti found out about that and knew that it was an attempted murder of him and that gas pipe was behind it, he recruited a bunch of guys to kill Gaspipe. And Gaspipe is driving his car. He stops at a light in, I guess it's sort of gravesend around George the Georgetown houses out there. And um, when he's at the light, these guys open the, uh, pull down the windows and shoot into the car. Gas pipe is driving. He ducks down. He gets hit, but he doesn't get killed. He gets out of the car. They take off. It is now his job. His his only job his his obsession was to find out who was in that car. And how does he do it? Well, he recruits what he called his crystal balls. He was working with Caracapa and Epolito at that time. Um, on small things. He had been introduced to them by a guy named Bert Kaplan. And um, and when he found, when he escaped this murder attempt, he recruited them to find out who the guys in the car were. And they had records. They had all kinds, you know, they had police department records. They had computers at their disposal. And they found out. They found out. One of the guys was um, a guy named Jimmy Heidel. Heidel was one of the people in the car. So the mafia cops were looking for Jimmy Heidel, and they knew that he lived in Staten Island with his mother and his brother. And they went to the mother's house one afternoon, knocked on the door. Oh, I'm sorry. As they were approaching the house, they saw someone who they thought was Jimmy. It turns out it was his brother, Frankie. They they talked about him, and he said, you know, you're looking for my brother. I'm Frankie. and, And they let him go. But they had knocked on the door of his mother's home before that, and she told him, Jimmy is not not here. And when they left and saw Frankie on the street, who they thought was Jimmy, they pick him up, and and it turns out it was the wrong person. When Frankie comes home, he tells his mother all about this, right? So she never forgets about this. And she, and then Jimmy, of course, is killed. Gas pipe kills him and and kills some of the other people who are involved. And... um, she never told anyone about that visit by Epelito and Caracappa to her home, even though Tommy Dades was the investigator, lead investigator for the death of her other son, Frankie. So she got to know him pretty well, Mrs. Heidel. She never told him. One day, out of the blue, Dimitri, she calls up Tommy and she says, you know, something I have to tell you, I got to get it off my chest. I never told you this before. And she tells him about the visit. And how does she know who they are? Well, she was watching a talk show, the old Jesse, Sally, Jesse Raphael talk show. And who was on? Eppolito with his book, Mafia Cop. She buys the book, Dimitri, and she opens it up and inside are photographs. And there's a photograph of Eppolito and Caracappa in a police station. And she says, that's these the guys, okay? She At that time, she went to the FBI. They, nah, they didn't have any interest in it. The U.S. attorney had no interest. So she said, okay. But then she, it didn't sit right with her. And she told Tommy. Tommy came to me that morning and said, he has this piece of evidence. I said, let's go with it. Let's see what we can do. So he went across to the U.S. attorney's office. And because um, we knew that gas pipe was involved in some way. And we knew Gaspipe was in jail at the time, and he was—he had been—he had become an informant, and he was doing seventeen life sentences. So we knew there were files in the U.S. Attorney's office. He went over, and he came back to the DA's office with ten boxes of records from the U.S. Attorney's office, all dusty old records, and started to plow through them. We we gave him a little office on another floor in the building. And one day he comes down to me, excited as hell. And he says, we got him. We got him. We got him. And I said, well, Tommy, what are you talking about? He said, I found this computer printout. And I'll tell you what it is in a second. And look who's look who is, whose name is on it. It was Kara Kappa. What Kara Kappa was asked to do by gas pipe was to find out who was in that car. Ask around, ask around. They found out that there was a guy in the car named Nicky Guido, who was, um, who they didn't know specifically where he lived, but they figured that he had to live, you know, in South Brooklyn somewhere. And Paracapa started to go through on the computer, Nicky Guido, Nicky Guido, and he finds a guy who kind of fits the description who is um who's who lives where they think he's going to live where he he's supposed where they think he lives and he gives the whole all of this information to um to gaspipe gaspipe sends two guys on christmas morning down this block nicky guido's block guido is showing his a brand new car to his uncle they're in the car and this other car pulls up alongside They take out guns and they start firing. Nicky Guido jumps on top of his uncle to protect his uncle, and they kill him. It's the wrong Nicky Guido. The guy they kill worked for the phone company. When Nicky Guido, the real Nicky Guido, hears this, he he takes off and leaves and, and left to go to California, and he became an informant anyway. So that was the piece of paper now, this computer printout, that had the address of the guy who was killed, the name of the guy who was killed, and it had Kara Kappa had done it. And that started us off on the investigation. And one thing led to another, led to another, and then we hit a brick wall. And I said, you know, we need somebody on the inside. And Tommy finds out that Gaspipe Casso is in Brooklyn, in the Metropolitan Detention Center in, in Sunset Park, to testify at a trial. And I contact the U.S. Attorney's Office in Brooklyn and ask them if I can go talk to them because in order to get into those federal jails, you need the U.S. Attorney to give you some kind of permission. They say no. They say no. Why? Because they didn't want to give Casso any credit for anything good because he had been trying to mess up the Gotti conviction by telling people that that Sammy Gravano had lied, etc. So... Um, I finally, I finally, um, actually I jumped ahead. I, what I did first was to call his lawyer, Gaspipe's lawyer. And I spoke to him. And, um, in the, while he was going to, he was talking to Gaspipe to see if he would do it. The U.S. Attorney said, forget it. We're not going to let you in. But I, I knew that I could work on it. So I was confident that if I had gotten his lawyer to say, yes, I was going to get permission to do it. So the lawyer gets back to me. And he says, um, my client will do it, but here's what I want. He, I want him to get <laughs> immunity from the Jimmy Heidel murder. I said to him, are you out of your mind? I said, your guy is doing 17 life sentences. That's a Brooklyn murder? I've got, you got it. You got immunity. No problem. I'll give you the immunity. So now let me go talk to him. He says, no, 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 Mike, you don't understand I want the feds to give us immunity also so that they won't bring him in on some kind of RICO thing and charge him with the Jimmy Heidel thing. I said to him, that's when I said to him. Are you crazy? I said, do you think the feds are going to waste any more time? You guys doing 17 life sentences. He can't get another uh, uh, another sentence t- that makes it any worse. Nor if he if they give him immunity on this, is it going to get him out of jail? He's, he, it's crazy. He said, I'm sorry. It's the only way we'll do it. Feds go off on their investigation, which they were not interested in, by the way, in the beginning with the mafia cops until we uncovered all of this stuff. Suddenly now they wanted to get involved, make a RICO case, etc. It, it was a mess, Dimitri. It was a mess. They lied to me. They went back on their word. They, the bottom line is the feds wound up taking the case and um, and we got basically no credit from them. Um, other than me being allowed to stand up at the press conference to announce the arrest of these guys and saying the truth. I told them what, what happened. And then I went back and Joe Hines did his own press conference and we were able to at least get get some credit. The other part of this that's really strange is that um, during the course of all these judge investigations and everything I was doing, we had, we had gotten, we started an investigation into a, a corrupt FBI agent who was involved with the Colombo family etc and um S- G- Greg Scarpa was a, a, a Colombo I don't know what you want to call him he wasn't a he wasn't a boss but he was their their number one assassin um he was called Lucifer by by the US attorney's office when they were interviewing him we had his son in his son was an informant that came in from um Colorado, the, the jail in Colorado sat with us and I had him in my office for a year. He came in and when he came in, one of the first days he, I introduced myself and he goes, Oh, I'm glad I met you because I'm in there with Gaspipe. He wants to talk to you. He wants the, you to come and see him. He wants to talk to you. So anyway, after all is said and done, I go down to, at this point, Gaspipe was in a, a prison hospital in North Carolina. So we fly down to North Carolina, sit down with him and, um, and I said, first thing I said to him was, did you read the book? We had written Friends of the Family by that time. He said, yeah. I said, so what do you think? He goes, eh, about 95% accurate. I said, okay, I'll take that. That's, that's good. I said, but I got to ask you a question. Why did you not want to speak to me? You always tell me you want to talk to me now. Why didn't you want to speak to me? He said, Mike, I didn't know that you wanted to speak to me until I read the book. My lawyer never told me that you guys were interested. So pretty strange, right? And, um, and you know what, I don't know if you remember what happened, but they tried the case in federal court and judge Weinstein dismisses it, sets it aside, sets the verdict aside and says that the Rico link that they had to find to get these guys into court was too tenuous, et cetera. Well, he was overruled by the appellate court and they went to jail for the rest of their lives. But, um, That's the mafia cop saga. And, uh, and friends of the family was the first book that I had ever been involved with in terms of being partially, you know, a a co author, etc. And, um, and it's all about that particular case. And um, since that time Dimitri, we have found so much more information about what these two guys did. Uh, You can't you can't believe it. It's uh, they had been on the take for a lot longer than we had originally thought. But we started because of uh, Betty Heidel, you know, so um so that's that's the mafia cops um it was a uh,
0: so it's no surprise that after you left public service you went into writing tell me about your books
1: okay well as i said the first one i uh, was i was a co-author during the time i was writing i was in the da's office but we couldn't um we couldn't do anything with it or release it because the case was still pending so it took a little bit of time to, for it to be released. It's called Friends of the Family and it's the inside story of the Mafia cops case. Once Jerry and I left after Thompson came in, as I said to you, we had this idea of doing a book based on those years uh during the, of those that big corruption scandal that I, that creep uh, corruption investigation. And um and that became Crooked Brooklyn. And um and it's a it's all about the judges it's all about the, the politicians it's all about the you know the corrupt FBI agent well not so much about him because I, I uh, that's a case that I really don't want to talk about not because it was anything wrong but it, it just left a bad taste in my mouth it was it had to be aborted because a couple of reporters had information that seemed to contradict one of our wit what a, one of our witnesses said anyway and then um we had the uh, we had the uh, Touched on the mafia cops case in the book, and then we did a case, and this is part of the book, and it's the last part of the book, about a dentist who was a um, who was a dental surgeon who came to our attention when he, he he when a a company that purchased a funeral home in Brooklyn in Bensonhurst. What they were doing, the 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 propi- not the proprietors, the principals of this company went to kind of look around the funeral home after they were after they had purchased it, and they came upon a room in the upstairs floor of the funeral home. Of two inside the room were two guys who were in scrubs, and they looked like they were working on a body. And uh, it's a funeral home, so it's not unusual. And the woman went over and said, "You know, what are you guys doing?" And they said, well, well, you know, we're we're taking the bone and tissue out of this guy. It was like, you what? She didn't know what to to say, but here's what happened. She didn't come to us with that complaint. She came to us because after she took over and looked at the books, she found out that the former proprietor had basically built her out of about $300,000 in prepaid funeral expenses for people who had paid for a funeral. You know, when I die, this is, and here's the money, et cetera. So she came to us with that. And in the conversation with the assistant DA about that, she told him about that visit to that room. So the assistant, whose name is Josh Hanshaft, he's now a judge in in, in Manhattan. He came to me and he said, Mike, I got this woman. And she tell, he tells me the story about the, the prepaid funerals, expenses, et cetera. He says, but she also told me that she came upon two guys who were taking bone out of one of the cadavers in the place. I said, what? What are you talking about? He said, that's what she said. You know, we should, what, what, what should we do? Should we do an investigation into the 300,000 or to the taking of the bones? I said, Josh, put the 300,000 on the back burner. Let's do the, let's do the, the body snatching uh, investigation. And, and we did. That led us to Michael Mastromarino, who was a dental uh, a surgeon who knew that bone was very important for transplant, for dental work, etc. And um, he lost his license as a dentist because he was addicted to Demerol. And um, and believe it or not, Dimitri, during the middle of an of, a, of an operation, a surgery, he fell asleep on the table because of the the drugs, and he got he lost his license. And he was living high on the hog, making a lot of money, had a big mansion in Fort Lee, New Jersey, had. Two kids at school, and, and and this guy was a Brooklyn guy. Came from, from I think from Bay Ridge, and um, went to school at Villanova. Was a good football player. In fact, so good that he was that he was touted as being NFL um, uh, worthy. And until he hurt his knee, so he went into dental uh, into dental school, and he became a dentist, and then a, and then a prominent surgeon. Um, and what he was doing was. He knew that bone was important to this to the to that industry as well as other industries uh, other parts of the medical profession for transplant, and decided to go into the business of of harvesting bone and tissue from cadavers. The problem was it's against the law unless you get the permission of a family member, which he was not getting he wasn't getting it, they were saying no, so he decided to pay off funeral directors to give him access to the bodies. So he could harvest the bone and tissue and didn't make a difference to him if the body was the person died of HIV or um, hepatitis or, or it didn't make a difference. Or they were 90 years old. And imagine taking a bone from someone and then selling it to a processing company and then have it trans, uh, transplanted into a person your age, let's say, except the bone is 90 years old. So um, so we had that case and um, and it was a worldwide, uh, I mean, we had, when we did the press conference for the arrest of Marshall Marino, we had so many people there. We had to open up another room in the DA's office to hold all of the press. And it was broadcast across the, um, you know, across the, across the world, basically. Um, so, so that was, that was kind of the the kind of the, the denouement of uh, of the book in terms of the corruption investigation. it was kind of the 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 end. Um, so we did that, and Jerry and I um began to 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 advertise and to publicize and we we were asked to go to a meeting to talk about the book, a meeting of of law enforcement people who and investigators who were retired and working in private industry, et cetera. and um we talked all about it. We got to know the head of the organization, and we found out that he was a retired, um, a retired agent for the federal government and worked for the Veterans Administration. And during his tenure, he locked up several doctors and nurses who were murdering veterans in the hospitals for various reasons. And uh, he tried to write a book. Let's just say he was a better investigator than he was a writer. He didn't do very well writing. And uh, Jerry and I asked him if he was interested. So that became Behind the Murder Curtain. Um, and that was the another book. Jerry, my friend Jerry, then became ill and has passed away. And in the midst of writing the, the one of the books that I, I put out last year called Homicide is My Business, and um, and that is about a mafia hitman that was an informant of mine um, back in the days when I first was in the DA's office. He became a, an informant for the, for me, for the federal government. He testified in front of Congress. And um, he had a life and was a, ca- a, a colorful, as colorful a character, if you can call a hitman a colorful character, he was. Um, so homicide is my business was then. And then I decided that uh, well, I, it was decided for me actually by book agents that I got involved with. They said that um, you know you do true crime, and I said, well, you know, I want to do a, a book of short stories. I got a lot of cases; they're not book-length stories, but I could tie them. You know, I could do them in one book. And they said, nah, if you can tie them all together, and that would be the way you could sell it. And I and I said, okay, I, I have an idea, and I approached the publisher who I knew. And I sent her a uh, proposal. Actually, I gave her the proposal. She asked me for it, and I was at a meeting with her. And I said, "Here, I have it." And she she took it and she loved it and gave me a three con- book contract. And I've written two, and I'm in the midst of the writing book three now. The title is Fallen Angel, and I call it a true crime fantasy. And basically, what it is is a, is a, a fantasy, a story of very, very bad crimes happening in Brooklyn. And I hearken back to my days when. There were 2000 homicides in the city and things were horrible. And, um, and a case that I did, the one that I told you about with the, that I came back to the DA's office and it was first trial I had, they gave me the case before I became an ADA to get ready. And then I came back and I tried it. It was the murder of a young, um, Orthodox Jewish girl. And I call her a girl because she was like 13 or 14 years old. And she was walking on the Williamsburg bridge for exercise every Sunday morning, um, and she was accosted right around um, Hanukkah one, one, one year by a junkie who thought that she had money and, um, and wanted to rob her, and she didn't. And he took her to another part of the bridge, and he strangled her with her own, uh, with her own uh, uh, scarf, stripped her, and made it look as if it was a, a, a sex crime so he would not be even thought of as being one of these people who could do this. And then he hooked up with a, one of his junkie friends who said, you can't leave the body that way. You got to go back and we've got to burn it. And they got gasoline and burnt this body of this young woman. It, when I tried it, and I said this at some point to not only to the jury, but to colleagues and to, I was interviewed like someone like you. I said, it was as if, I mean, he was, he was basically Satan. That's how bad this guy was. He had also killed his best friend by the way, just before this, because his best friend wouldn't give him cash, so he, st- he stuck his wallet and killed him so that he wouldn't give him up. I tried that case too and convicted him but so the whole idea of Satan being behind these horrific crimes is 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 my is my idea, and they need a special prosecutor to handle the cases in which Satan is the instigator. When he comes to Brooklyn, he's been doing it all over the world. He comes to Brooklyn, and um, it just so happens that the prosecutor chosen was the chief of the homicide bureau in the DA's office in Brooklyn. And um, I call him Michael Gioca. and um, and it the all of the crimes that that Satan instigates um, are tried and handled by Gioca in these in these books. They're all true cases. They're all cases that I handled. So that's. True crime fantasy. The crimes are true, but the whole kind of wrapped around story is uh, is the fantasy. And um, and I'm writing book three right now. When I get do, done with this, I'm going. I've got already got a contract for another true crime book about a detective, cop slash detective who was a, a good friend of mine and who was a tough tough cop, a good good detective. And um, when he retired, he went up state. And his wife talked him into going to a Catholic retreat to, as part of, you know, a, just renew their religion, etc. And he met some people who talked him into becoming a minister, prison minister, in, uh, in a federal prison and a state prison upstate. And uh, while he was reluctant to do it, he did it. And um, now 25 years later, he has finally retired from his prison ministry. And the stories of his... Uh, what he has done to help these prisoners just captured I mean it just grabbed me and the and the contrast from a guy who was a tough cop, the toughest um now to a guy who is ministering to the people he used to lock up and put away it's um it was something which I thought needed to be told and and i and I have a contract now i'm gonna i'm gonna write the book after I finish fallen angel so um so right now, you, you your listeners and viewers, Fallen Angel is out there. Two books, part one and part two. And um, and so is Homicide is my business. And and quite frankly, all of the books are out there uh on Amazon. You can find them. So um, so that's my and that's my writing career. I've by the way, I have to give a little bit of a another little plug. I sold Fallen Angel book one to uh to Hollywood and um a pilot has been written and I'm now waiting to, uh, to hear the good news about where it's going to go. So, um, the pilot's really interesting. He's made it, the sat the Satan character is a lot more vivid in, you know, in the pilot and on TV than, than he is in my book. I have a more understated, but, um, I think it's going to be a good story if, uh, if, if I get it made. So, uh, and, and we sold friends of the family again as well to, uh, to Hollywood. So, um, so well, that's it. That's my, that's my career in a nutshell uh, and a big nutshell, as I said before, Dimitri, but thank you very much for, um, you know, for asking me on and for allowing me to talk about myself, you know, one of, one of my favorite topics, quite frankly.
0: Mr. Vecchio, and I'll still call you that. Thank well, uh, you so much for your time.
1: Anytime. And um, if you ever get the itch again, to ask me something else about anything else, I'll be happy to be on. It was a, uh, it was a pleasure, Dimitri. Thank you. And I, I really appreciate it. Thanks so much. Take care.